following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Geeks, and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 71.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. And hey, I hope you joined us for episode 71. It was definitely a change of pace in terms of attitude, I guess you would say. Yes, my wife, Dr. Kristen, joined us, and I think uh, by the end of it, she admitted she had had some fun along the way, learned a couple things. Uh, It was actually great to hear from so many of you. You know, we release these episodes, and I think you guys are just enjoying them, and you don't say oh i like this i like that hey i thought this was funny but we actually got several comments on social media as well as dms and other things of people saying they thought it was just a fun change of pace one person did not enjoy uh her somewhat sour attitude towards comics but hey that's just the reality that some of us live in right uh you're probably wondering by now has she read all the collected editions of echo she has not uh but all in good time all in good time she has been carrying around the first uh, collection with her so hopefully that will come around soon we can get a review from dr Kristen. what's she thinking about reading comics but don't worry we will be back to business as usual geeking out all over the place in coming episodes stay tuned until the end of this one because i'll be telling you who our special guest is going to be for episode 72 and a bonus episode that's coming up but in the meantime you might consider it a bit of a prize if your significant other decided to join in on your hobby but let's check out what other prizes people were winning in the contest featured at Wizard Magazine. That's right, it's time for Cap's Kooky Contests. Well, we know that Wizard couldn't get enough of Batman and Robin. Well, I should say, I think they had had enough, but there was so much promotion going on for that movie, you had to cover it. Somebody wanted to know. Uh, So DC Comics Fleer and Graffiti Designs present the Batman and Robin Calling All Heroes contest. Here's the scoop. Gotham City's been overrun by the combined criminal forces of Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, and Bane. Their henchmen have been ransacking Gotham, stealing all the valuables from its defenseless citizens. This job is just too big for Batman and Robin to handle alone. They need another worthy hero. Yes, perhaps even you could help stop this maddening crime spree from overtaking the city. Think you have what it takes, brave soul? Here's what you need to do, hero. Tell us in 50 words or less what kind of hero you are, or would like to be. Give us your superhero name, the powers you possess, what kind of costume you would wear, etc. Then, if Batman and Robin feel you have what it takes to be a hero, you can aid them in their adventure and return home with some of these Batcave goodies. Grand prize. One hero will receive a Batman and Robin Fleer trading card set plus a fully autographed set of Batman and Robin movie comics, including the movie adaptation and the four relevant one-shots, Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, Bane, and Batgirl. That hero will also receive a Batman logo t-shirt. First prize. Five allies will receive a fully autographed set of Batman and Robin movie comic books, including the movie adaptation and the four relevant one-shots 
one-shots. They also receive a Batman logo t-shirt. And second prize, 15 flunkies will receive one of the four Batman-related one-shots autographed by books artist and writer, plus a Batman logo t-shirt. So really, the grand prize, the only difference here is that you get Batman and Robin Fleer trading card sets. So if that's what you were into, you really wanted those Batman and Robin trading cards, you were vying for grand prize. Otherwise, everybody else was in pretty good shape there. We did actually hear from some people that really enjoyed, uh, like, the Brian Steel Freeze covers on those one-shots. In fact, one guy even got them autographed, which is very cool. Well, let's check out the legal looting. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, DC Comics, Graffiti Designs, Fleer, their immediate families, or whoever wrote that line, it's a hockey team from hell, from the Batman and Robin flick. Like I said, Wizard, not actually fans of this movie or its direction. All right, this next one here is longer than usual. It says, offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. If Poison Ivy kisses you and you get all crazy and stuff, what happens if you, you know, uh... Ah, forget it. Warner Brothers will sue us out of existence if we follow that trail of thought. <laughs> All right, well, hey, if you won this contest back in the day, show us your uh, full set of Fleer trading cards. But on to the next contest. Hall of Heroes presents the Sleepwalking You Do Voodoo Contest. Wow. What's that you say? You've always wanted to practice witchcraft to do some voodoo? Well, lucky for you, Hall of Heroes wants to finally grant you the chance to spin a little magic. Its new hit horror comic, Sleepwalking, is just packed to the rim with creepies, crawlies, ghosts, and ghoulies of every kind. But it's a little short in one category. Witch doctors. Think your magic can help? How to cast a spell. Just pick up your pencils, pens, crayons, or magic wands and design and draw your your very own voodoo witch doctor. It's that easy. It's that fun. It's that uh, spooky. And here's the horrific part. The best entries win oodles of sleepwalking tricks and treats. Grand prize. One lucky winner will have his or her voodoo witch doctor appear in an issue of sleepwalking. The winner will also receive an original page of sleepwalking artwork, one copy of sleepwalking signed by Kelly Jones, Jerry Beck, and Jerry Kennedy, a sleepwalking double-sided jumbo print t-shirt, and a sleepwalking embroidered hat. Whew! First prize. Ten winners will each receive a special limited edition sleepwalking ash can signed by Kelly Jones, Jerry Beck, and Jerry Kennedy. Second prize, 20 winners will each receive a copy of Sleepwalking signed by Kelly Jones, Jerry Beck, and Jerry Kennedy. I will admit I know nothing about Sleepwalking. I have never seen this. Like, I didn't see it back in the day. I've never heard anybody talk about it. Of course, we all know Kelly Jones, but I think most people know him from Dead Man and his very long-eared Batman illustrations, so this is interesting. I will say, though, uh, the imagery they have here is some guy, you know, must be the main character, looks very zombie-like, but above him is is some sort of voodoo witch doctor. He's got like a three-headed snake, but it basically just looks like Lobo. It's really interesting, so I don't, I don't know how they got away with that. Says, this contest is sponsored by Hall of Heroes who never sleep on the job. Tiring legal matters. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Hall of Heroes, their immediate families, and anybody who thinks biting the heads off chickens and drawing inverted crosses with blood is weird. What's your problem? <laughs> Let's see here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Think the guy who created Brother Voodoo is bitter that stuff like the Jericho drum merchandise craze hasn't kicked in yet? <laughs> oh, Brother Voodoo. I'm pretty sure he made an appearance in She-Hulk eventually. But uh, hey, there you go. If you were a sleepwalking fan, you gotta let us know about this, because again, I have not heard about this ever. Next one... 
Marvel Comics presents the Star Trek Trivia Contest. Now, Dr. Kristen mentioned this. I think it was cut out of the main episode, but as she was flipping through pages, she's like, I've binged every series of Star Trek. I could probably answer some of these. So maybe that's it, guys. She's not a comic book fan. She's a Trekkie. So, hey, Trekkies, think you know your Star Trek trivia? How about your Star Trek comic trivia? Well, if you want to boldly go where no comic fan has gone before and win some neato prizes, too, then simply answer the five trivia questions Marvel Comics has provided below, and all of this could be yours. Grant prize. One lucky reader will receive a Star Trek Varsity Letterman's jacket from Paramount Studios. First prize. Five readers will receive authentic costume pieces from the Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager TV shows signed by the appropriate cast members. Second prize. Ten readers will receive autographed copies of various Star Trek titles, all from Marvel Comics. Okay, okay. So first of all, I had no idea that Marvel published Star Trek comics because DC had that license forever and I know that Paramount was doing a bunch of stuff you know, at this time, and I guess it was in collaboration with Marvel, but they were getting Top Cow Studios to draw it? I don't know. Like, that's really interesting. But the fact that you could get actual costume pieces, like, that's a big deal for fans. Now, the, this contest is sponsored by Marvel Comics, going where no comic book company has gone before. Well, I am not so well-versed in the world of Star Trek. My best friend is. Like I said, my wife has watched it, but I've uh, intermittently checked in, so let's see if I can get a hold on any of these. Question Number one, what class of starship is the Voyager? Couldn't tell ya. Number two, what is the Cardassian name for Deep Space Nine? Nope. Three, in Star Trek The Early Voyages, what species is Nano, Captain Pike's command officer? Ah, no. Number four, in Star Trek Starfleet Academy, what is the name of the character's Trill Tutor? <laughs> and number five, in Star Trek Unlimited, what was the name of the elite assassins hired to kill Mr. Mott? Okay. Now that I've said all that, I just remembered, if you've watched on our YouTube channel, I did a whole series about this $50 mystery long box that I bought, and I just, it had a ton of Marvel Star Trek comics in there. I just have not read them yet. I just totally spaced on that. Huh? No pun intended. I'll have to go back and check them out, and then maybe I'll have better luck with these questions. All right, but let's get into the Trekkie laws. So, contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Marvel Comics, their immediate families, and whoever keeps casting X Benson actors as Starfleet personnel. Why, was Robert Guillaume on that series? I don't know. Uh, what's next here? Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. And Trekker doesn't sound any hipper than Trekkie. So I, this is a little bit of a preview, uh, but we are going to be talking a lot about Star Trek in an upcoming bonus episode, and that very topic is discussed. So again, stay tuned for the end of the episode to get all those details. If you've listened to past episodes to the very end you already have some idea what i'm talking about but let's get into our last contest here marvel comics presents the x-men's cool with carlos contest okay we all know the x-men are cool cyclops cool gambit way cool rogue the ultimate cool but hey how cool have they been since carlos pacheco started drawing them pretty dang cool wouldn't you say in fact carlos is having such a cool time drawing x-men for marvel comics he now wants to draw them for you too there's actually a picture of a uh, Carlos's head on some character's body. It says, hold that pose. I gotta grab my sketchbook. And then Wolverine's saying, okie dokie, Smokey. Uh, how to engage in the coolness. This one's a cinch. Simply fill in the name of the X character you think is the coolest on the entry form provided below and mail it in. If you win, Carlos Pacheco will draw your coolest character just for you. Sorry, kiddies, but winners are chosen by random 
random drawing, not by their coolness factor. Grand prize, one cool cat will receive an original drawing of his or her favorite X-Men character, drawn by none other than Carlos Pacheco. There ain't nothing cooler than that. Second prize, 20 second prize winners will each receive a copy of the June 1997 X-Men issue, autographed by Carlos Pacheco, an icy cool treat for any comic fan. Of course, we just recently lost Carlos Pacheco, so that is uh, wonderful for those of you who were fans and if you were able to actually enter this contest and win a little something from him. But it says, this contest is sponsored by Marvel Comics, a group as cool as Coolio. And in 1997, there was no one cooler than Coolio. All right, let's check out here if there's, yep, contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Marvel Comics, or immediate families, or any fans of Artie and Leech. No prize for you. <laughs> oh, just pick it on Artie and Leech. Is Artie a Morlock too, or just Leech? I don't know. Next one here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. The Toad's mutant power was to jump like three times higher than a normal human. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> that was it? I guess he didn't have the tongue in his original incarnation. He wasn't quite mutated enough. Maybe that was after the movie. Well, that does it for the contest. All the prizes have been given out, but there might be a few surprises. That's right. If you listen to our main episode, you know that we were teasing our guest for a very fun casting call conversation. So, hey, let's get into it. All right, well, here we are. It's time for another wizard casting call, and we're having a good time inviting special guests to join us. If you've listened to one of our recent episodes, you know that we had Richie on with us, and he had a special connection because he was actually on the set of the original Iron Man film. And that is what we were talking about today, Wizard's Pitch for an Iron Man movie casting call. Richie, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. We're excited to have you here because, yeah, certainly you you have some opinions just as a comic book fan, but also as someone in the business who <laughs> takes certain things into consideration. So let's jump on board here with uh, their first pick. Because we got to go with the man himself, Tony Stark. Of course, there were always, you know, throughout the 90s, who's going to play Tony Stark? Is it Nicolas Cage we were reading about? And then here they're talking about none other than Timothy Dalton. Now, what do you think? For one, I'm shocked that they didn't go right to Tom Cruise just in, in their casting because I felt like that was always the name that was being pushed. But Timothy Dalton, I actually love. It's so drastically different than what we got with uh, Robert Downey Jr. But Timothy... Timothy Dalton sort of was the like, you know, 90s Iron Man. When you look at like the cartoon, it looks like they modeled it after him. And, and I agree with them. Like he definitely would have went the mustache route. Like you wouldn't see Timothy Dalton as like the goateed Tony Stark that we got. So I think he'd be like the much more stoic, rich drinker version of him than Robert Downey Jr., which was like the more like out there fun not taking anything serious yeah well what i find interesting about the choice i've never heard timothy dalton try an american accent so i don't know if in that script they would have to add some oh you know american father british mother type thing just let him be a british tony stark but the other side of it too is the picture they've chosen is from marvels that obviously alex ross in marvels 
modeled Tony Stark on Timothy Dalton as well. So I think, yeah, he just does have that suave nature to him. He had played James Bond, so we know he can do the action. And and of course, he was in Flash Gordon. Can't forget that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they would have got him for too many movies, though, because I feel like he would have done one and then just jump ship. Yeah, so I, I don't know if they would have been building a universe at that point. But hey, who did they want for Rhodey? Jim Rhodes over here, Richie. Okay, the the absolutely fantastic Carl Weathers. This, this is weird because I feel like with Timothy Dalton... They would have really worked well together because they like they they have that sort of they're both similar age. They were doing those types of movies. And I think at this time, Carl Weathers was he was stuck on TV, right? He was just doing like TV movie and straight to video stuff. So this would have been like his sort of return to a big role in a movie. I mean, I I think it would have been fantastic. I mean, the good news is he had been in a feature film playing a number two in a sense. And that was to Adam Sandler and Happy Gilmore when he was Chubbs, you know, but I, like I, you think of him in the Rocky films, like especially Rocky three, like he's, he's got this mentor role, which, you know, could be like the mentor best friend trying to keep Tony, you know, on the level and all that. Like, and plus he's just got that smile. You just love Carl Weathers <laughs> on the screen when he shows up. You're like, oh, it's going to be a good movie. <laughs> Yeah, and then get and get him back into the sort of serious action movies as opposed to, you know, Happy Gilmore. And then what did he do? Uh, he, he returned to Little Nicky after that, which, oh, that was not good. No. And I mean, Action Jackson, obviously, he had had his starring role and being with Schwarzenegger and Predator. So yeah, definitely he would have given it that action movie cred. Now, for Bethany Cave, who I wasn't reading a lot of Iron Man comics at this time, I assume that was his main... No, it wasn't. That This is the most peculiar addition in here because she was his love interest in like the 70s and 80s, but not the 90s. She was long gone by the 90s. I, I feel like they included this character because they thought they had someone that just looked so much like her that they can include on here to be like, look, we found someone that is the the spitting image as opposed to where's Pepper? Where's Happy? There's some like glaring supporting cast missing from here. But then we have Bethany Cabe. Yeah, Angie Everhart is Bethany Cabe. And I'm just like, okay, I don't know who that is, but I do know who Angie Everhart is. And I've seen her in a Bordello of Blood and not so good. That's like Elle McPherson in Batman and Robin. You know, the movie was bad. And then you cast a supermodel and you just keep, you know, bringing it down a notch. So it's unfortunate. But that leads perfectly into who they chose for Crimson Dynamo because the wizard casting calls always had to include a wrestler. That was just <laughs> a point of fact that they had to do uh and then they have nickel i I can never pronounce the name koloff yeah nikita koloff who this is like his fifth appearance in a casting call whenever they need a buff bald character they just drop in nikita koloff it is crazy like he wasn't even that big a wrestler and you know probably made it to tv a few times but yeah to me i'm just like "Eh, that's fine but it feels like these characters are mostly gonna be in a suit of armor so mm-hmm. like does it really even matter who you cast you know it's just get any stunt man you know unless you want somebody to act but they're obviously not picking him as an actor so <laughs> no and, and that's what i feel like you know and i believe you talked about this in probably all the, the casting call episodes but they just really like they, they hit hard on looks right they like does this person look the part as opposed to would this person really act the part would they be the right person to bring it to life and yeah he i mean he does look 
enough like him, but this is put in the movie, you know, we have a supermodel and then a wrestler. <laughs> Didn't they learn anything from Batman and Robin, which was around the same year as this, right? Yeah, it was just happening right at this moment. And that's the thing is Titanium Man, they just go, well, who's another person who played a Russian in a movie? Oh, let's get the guy who played Zangief in Street Fighter. We believe he's close to 10 feet tall, so he's perfect <laughs> for the role. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I just find that hilarious. Uh, but this casting for me for the man is really fun because they want Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa, who was Shang Tsung in Mortal Kombat. He's in Planet of the Apes. I mean, he's a great actor. He's in a lot of stuff. I love him. And I think he would he would bring a lot of gravitas to the role and all that. But honestly, somebody who already basically played the Mandarin in The Shadow with Alec Baldwin was John Lone when he played Shiwan Khan. And if they're going for the stereotypical classic Mandarin, John Lone is the guy. I never even thought of him for the role, but I I, I agree. Now, I, I think either direction would have worked. And I, I, I love Mandarin. He is one of my favorite comic book villains. I was really sad that we never got Iron Man and him to face but off. But Guy Pierce. Hey, <laughs> he's the real oh, Mandarin. No, don't go there. Don't <laughs> go there. I'm happy they have finally done the character justice, uh, in, you know, more recently, but also like a one-off, appearance yeah definitely i mean it's cool that you know they had the idea like he is iron man's greatest villain we're gonna use him but there is another foil i guess you would say for tony stark in his business persona and that is justin hammer who do they want for justin hammer there richie they they went big on this so they 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 go with christopher lee he is spot on what Justin Hammer looks like in the comic. You know, it's a very different vibe than Sam Rockwell brought to it. (laughs) Because he has that like young hot shot, and this is Christopher Lee, which just like older, the the gravitas he would bring to it, and like he'd sort of be a much more serious version of the character, which could work for it, but like. How would they want him to be used is my question. Honestly, I bet he would just be showing up and he would be bankrolling some of the bad guys like in collaboration with the Mandarin. Like there'd there'd be something going on there. Like trying to steal the tech. Yeah, that's what it's always about, right? I think it wasn't, was Armor Wars? Was that what Justin Hammer was doing? He was the one stealing the armor? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I mean that. Yeah, they, I'm sure they would have gone with that storyline. But like to me, when, I, when you talk about Sam Rockwell, I just want to mention. You know, we we are all most of us at least upset by Iron Man two. We're like, what is going on here? But that movie has grown on me so much over the years. It wasn't what I was expecting at the time, but his performance is fantastic in that movie. It is so great. I wish he would come back for another one of the MCU films. He has to, right? It, it, I mean, he has to be part of Armor Wars. When they do that, he has to be the central villain. That's what I'm hoping, yeah. He's he's growing slowly closer to Christopher Lee's age. The more time they wait, he'll start looking like <laughs> that picture. Yeah. For the living laser, which he has to have one of the worst supervillain costumes ever. <laughs> Why would they include this villain? Like, why? Yeah, I mean, they 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 picked a great actor, Tom Berenger, I'm sure. But it does not feel like you look at Tom Berenger and you're like, yes, he is definitely the living laser. <laughs> the cool thing about this is it would reunite him with, I guess, well, at this time, his future co-star of The Substitute for Angie Everhart. <laughs> this was before its time, bringing them together wizard just hit where they were on that same wavelength as the producers of the casting agent for that film or, or someone casting the substitute for is just like 
searching for something for you know to co-star and they're like whoa look at this casting call from wizard in 1997 yeah now uh for mrs arbogast which is i i, I again you you want she's the money penny i guess to, to tony stark she's his secretary they want time daily i always hear the name but she was always in like shows for adults that i wasn't watching as a kid <laughs> okay but she is in the mcu I mean, she's the leader of damage control in Homecoming. Yeah. So, so this could be before it's time casting as, as well. Wow. They just knew that she would fit in the Marvel Universe somehow. <laughs> Although I was looking at it and I was like, she is like the spitting image. Just put some glasses on her. She works. But I would think somebody like Kathy Bates would bring a lot of attitude to the role, which would make it a little bit more fun. But Kathy Bates would not have done it, right? Like, no way. At this time... Just coming up at... Misery. Misery, there we go. Now, I have to ask you, in any way, shape, or form, do you recognize who they have picked here for Madam Mask? Because they don't even reference her from anything. I have no idea who that is. Somebody called Yasmin Gari. I googled her. They spelled her first name wrong. It's E-E-N, not I-N. Apparently she's a Canadian model, but I've never seen her in my life. Very striking. But I was just like, that is strange. I I don't understand it. Yeah. Unless there was someone on the staff that was just like, I love this model. Yeah. Who <laughs> was like, we have to put her in, and maybe then someone will see her and cast her in in movies. Yeah, it's like I can't even have an opinion. I'm just baffled by it. <laughs> but who did they want for Scott Lang? Hey, the character who recently starred in his third film. Is it Jer or Jerry Burns? It's got to be Jer, but I don't know. Maybe it's Jerry. <laughs> and. I, I recognize the face, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head anything that he's been in. And I'm sure it's probably he probably has one of those credit lists that's like 100 films long or something or 100 <laughs> shows long. Yeah. But I, I cannot tell you anything. I know that Scott Lang always did have more of a freewheeling kind of attitude in the comics. Can you think of somebody from the era, an actor from the 90s, a Paul Rudd type perhaps? <laughs> Paul Rudd was pretty young starring in like the fifth Halloween film at this time, so. <laughs> See, I would still go with Paul Rudd. He looks exactly <laughs> the same as he does now. He was just coming off clueless at this point, so he's young adult. I could see him being like a Stark tech whiz at that point and timothy dalton is older so if you're having him opposite timothy dalton it sort of works you have this young hot shot whiz kid you know tech guy i think that makes a lot of sense i also like the idea of this could have been like they're they're inserting the character so they can spin him off into his own film you know so it's just like hey remember we introduced him do you love this paul rudd kid let's give him a movie it would be inspired casting and a good lead to a spinoff but still why is happy hogan not here bizarre or pepper yeah it's just like it feels like there's some key elements that they missed out on but they did pick one more villain one more you know business rival of tony stark so they're not going with jeff bridges for obadiah stayed which was a great casting but unexpected who did they want here richie the fantastic marvelous ed harris who i would watch in any of these roles in this movie because he's just <laughs> 
that good. He is great. And hey, he was about to be in a comic book movie. When was A History of Violence? When did that come out? I'm trying to remember. Is that like 99? Yeah, I think it's 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 a bit later than this. Okay, yeah. But it's it's one of those things I, I'll just mention. So my wife comes from a very small town in Montana. Her parents still live there. But like movies get filmed there from time to time. And Ed Harris was just there last year filming some, fil- I think he was directing it too, they said. But he was just in town for a couple weeks. <laughs> I was just like, that's wild. That's awesome. I got to say, though, from the picture they chose and sort of where Ed Harris has grown into, this casting call right here makes me want him to be the new DCU Lex Luthor. I've never thought of that before. I've never really pictured him in that, but... That would be awesome. The intensity that he would bring, definitely. He would it wouldn't be the humorous version of Gene Hackman. It would definitely be the coming after you. Look which, out. Which is the version I feel like we need now. <laughs> so Ed Harris, Jeff Bridges, I mean, both I think would have worked in their in their own right. Jeff Bridges, I was shocked when they cast him in that role and to be an armored villain. But he was fantastic. I mean, my favorite moment of him is when he's going to take the pizza away from Tony and then he lets him take a piece like that. It cracks me up. Uh, it's a good bit of business there. But you brought it up several times, Richie. So as we go out here, if they had included a spot for Happy Hogan, who do you think of the era is going to play an ex-boxer buddy to Tony Stark, a bodyguard of sorts, a confidant? Like my mind immediately goes to somebody who doesn't necessarily look the part but literally has that background and has used it in multiple roles and that is tony danza because he's always like i'm a, I'm a ex-boxer you know hey, angela <laughs> but i don't know if there's somebody else you feel uh, fits the look more 1997 i it would have to be macho man randy savage <laughs> definitely got the iron man coming in there yeah oh, it, it has to be a wrestler it has to be <laughs> Hey, and if he was good enough for Sam Raimi to use in Spider-Man, I mean, perfect. That's great. I don't think we can get better than that. Happy Hogan as played by Macho Man Randy Savage. Okay. That is definitely my serious, very serious answer to that question. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Richie. Do you want to point anybody anywhere where they can find you and have more conversations? Yes, you you can follow me on uh, Instagram, uh, Richie Filippi. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, RS The Pit. So (laughs) R-S-T-H-E-P-I-T. And uh, no, thank you so much for having me back. I absolutely love talking comics, talking movies, and this this was fun. We'll look forward to talking to you again in the future, that's for sure. Let's get into our next segment. Let's check out the top 10 comics for May 1997. All right, number one here is Witchblade, which I found really interesting because Dark Child was number one the previous month, and now here we are with Witchblade back in the number one spot. It says, that's it. We're officially tired of this. This marks seven freaking months in a row that Witchblade number one has registered in the number one or number two slot in top ten comics. That means seven months in a row where we've had to spend a carefully crafted 110 to 125 words telling you everything you already know about Witchblade number one. You already know that Sarah Pacini, Witchier, 
yourself as one hot tamale of a super chica who specializes in skimpy red dresses. You already know that Michael Turner is quickly becoming the hottest artist this side of Leonardo da Vinci, so move on to something else already. We bet Casey Kasem doesn't have to put up with this. Speaking of Casey Kasem, if you guys have never heard the outtake rant that he goes on, you can look it up on YouTube and hear Casey Kasem just freaking out. You're like, what? The voice of Shaggy has a dirty mouth. Anyway, what's interesting here on these rankings now, they've added the previous ranking of the book as it appeared on a list. So this one says specifically last month it was number two. So it's kind of an interesting way to track things. But speaking of number two, it has changed this month. It's JLA number one. JLA is big, real big. It's bigger than Devil Dinosaur, bigger than Texas, bigger than your mama. So just how big is that in like quantifiable terms? Well, JLA number one sold out so darn fast that DC Comics went into a second printing in the same month that came out. DC even collected issues number one through four of JLA into the New World Order trade paperback by the time issue number five was out. Geez, we haven't seen such heat on a title since, well, since ever, maybe. Just goes to show that top shelf character and top shelf talent can still make for a big hit book. No need for variant covers here. And last month it was number six. All right, number three is the Darkness number one, but the Black Variant cover, which one of our listeners owns. We've seen that on social media. Speaking of variant covers, allow us to introduce you to our first of the month on this here list, the ever happy Darkness number one, Black. So why do you figure old Jackie Estacado, that's the darkness to you and me, looks so sad on this cover? Is it because he knows this drawing only shows up on one of every four darkness number ones? Or is it because he knows that as a consequence of his weird darkness power, he could die if he has sex? Yeah, we thought so too. Last month it was number three, so it's held in that spot. But now the former number one is Dark Child number one. In the number four spot, it says, you really gotta wonder about the intelligence of super types these days when it comes to choosing a secret identity. Take Ariel Child, for instance. One day she's your average high school student with eyes as big as billiard balls and boobs as big as beach balls, and the next day she's a demon portal chick from hell. So what's she call herself? Dark Child. Yeah, like no one's gonna make the connection between Ariel Child and Dark child sheesh makes clark kent's glasses look smart by comparison and they do mention last month it was number one so that's a big drop while i'm here i was thinking about doing a review of dark child but it's so one note that i won't but i did actually receive a trade for the archives if you've seen our hall video where greg orlando former wizard staffer and past guest sent us that package he included a dark child trade from back in the day so i started flipping through it i read like the first three or four issues in there and here's what i'll say like bad girls were never my thing so that like pretty girl art didn't really appeal to me so i was like well what else is this book gonna bring to the table because really it just looks like top cow comics art you know like the darkness all these little demons all these creatures there's like you know this big hulking demon that kind of just looks like pit you know like everything started looking pretty homogenized to me it's just like oh this is just the style of the time but the one thing i think was cool about dark child was that she did didn't always transform into the same creature like that's kind of her thing is she basically transforms into a monster in moments of stress I'm sure eventually she learns to control that but the fact that each time she does she's essentially summoning a different demon from hell to turn into I thought that was a pretty cool little twist in the idea anyway getting back to the list number five is witchblade number 10 darkness variant cover 
Pretend you're Top Cow Comics. It's easy. Just picture yourself with an udder, a big bell around your neck, and lots of drawing paper. You've got a top-selling book called Witchblade, and you want to debut a hopefully top-selling character called The Darkness in issue number 10. So what do you do to crank up the hype even more? Easy. You do a 1 in 4 Darkness number 0 variant cover on the Witchblade issue. Then you sit back and count the money. See? Comics is easy. Last month it was number 4. Number 6 is Preacher number 1. There are three schools of thought on Preacher. One group of comic observers thinks the title is nothing more than gratuitous sex and violence. They don't buy it. Other groups think that this is one of the best written, most realistically drawn comics available today. They buy the title. The third group just likes to see cats get flushed down the toilet and see armadillos get handled in a way they probably weren't intended to. They buy the book also. Looks like groups two and three are winning. So last month it was in the number five spot. Number seven is Fantastic Four number one from Heroes Reborn. We can all agree that this controversial little Marvel reboot project has everyone talking about it and everybody watching it. And the title they've been watching more than any other, why Fantastic Four of course. After all, the FF is the first family of the Marvel Universe and even the Heroes Reborn Pocket Universe. And they've got that cool flamey guy and that cool Rocky guy on the team. And that Jim Lee name carries a bit of weight too. Guess that's why they're at the top of the Reborn heap. Last month it was also number seven. Uh, and of course, if you'll recall, there was a fantastic top 10 list by Wizard who said the top 10 best things about Heroes Reborn and just gave us a blank list. So <laughs> you know where they stood. Uh, but number eight is new here and that is Body Bags. Surgeon General's warning, Body Bags is not for the faint of heart. In this issue, we've got stabbings, nose cuttings off, car explosions, ass grabbings, punches in the face, and a guy in a weird looking smiley face mask. Now, while that might sound like an average weekend in Vegas for the Dallas Cowboys, it ain't the typical kind of stuff you usually find in funny books, but it does open the possibility for some real interesting crossovers. What if Body Bags met Archie's pal Jughead or Sonic the Hedgehog? The mind boggles. So they say last month it was not ranked, but here it is in number eight. Now, number nine is JLA number two. Psst, hey. You with the Batman t-shirt. Look at this list. Only three of the ten books listed are superhero fare. The others easily fall into the general category of blood and guts. Your counterpoint to the tide of gore and assorted body parts? Well, there's always the nifty, death-defined, cape-flying, stand-it-up-for-the-truth-and-justice-the-American-way antics of the JLA, like those found at JLA number two. In this ish, they take out some nasty Martians. It may sound kind of plain, but it's pretty well done. Check it out. And this was not on the list last month either. But in the number ten spot, Hitman number one. Now, Hitman, at least, is blood and guts with a healthy dose of humor. In issue number one alone, our hero Tommy Monahan uses his x-ray vision to scope out the neighbor chick next door. Good idea. And throws up his curry dinner on Batman's boots. Bad idea. That Garth Ennis guy, twisted as he is, can be quite the funny fella. And John McCrea draws in a real distorted, quirky style that sure does look humorous on occasion. Hitman is the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of comics. Two great tastes that taste great together. And last month, it was number nine. So there you go our top 10 comics for May 1997, according to Wizard Magazine. How many of these were you buying? Of course, we're going to post it to social media. I'm always surprised at how many people were like, yeah, I pretty much bought all these books. And a lot of times they're this varied, right? I'm Dark Child and Witchblade, maybe not as varied, but... <laughs> Anyway, let's get into our next segment here. We're going to find out what Wizard thought of the current crop of comics in The Skinny. Deviate. 
there's a reason deviants are shunned. So if you guys don't know, uh, this was Warren Ellis, Umberto Ramos, and Sal Rigla. I actually have a lot of these issues and was going to do a full review. And then as I read the comic, I was like, hmm, <laughs> I don't know if I want to share my thoughts on this. But let's find out if Wizard agreed with me. What you need to know, former IO, International Operations Government Operative Ivana Bayul, is on the run from IO. Bayul has stolen a bunch of superpowered kids from IO's Project Genesis to be her team of deviants who go off on missions for her. The good. The stories are so bizarre, they're completely unpredictable. In one issue, Ivana sends out the deviants to recruit a bunch of renegade gen-active teens, but the people find they're so repulsive and unscrupulous, the team kills them instead. This offbeat nature keeps a reader on his toes. The dialogue is hip and cutting edge, and seems appropriate for these misfit characters. So that's it. The good section was very short. The bad. All of the characters in this title are extremely unlikable and eminently forgettable. The team is morally corrupt, to the point that they are not heroes but villains. They care nothing for human life and many innocents are killed during their adventures. Plus, they spend so much of their time talking about intra-team sexual activity and engaging in drug use that it's more prominent than any sort of adventures they have. Even worse, the scenes of drug use and sex have no impact on the stories. They're added to establish a dark mood that further makes the characters unlikable. Besides their obvious vices, little is done to flesh out who these characters are or to establish what powers they possess. Little is given by way of background in the first issue, including their origin, so you don't understand why or how any of it is happening. Many plot threads go nowhere when it looks like there's about to be pivotal conversation about the team's unity at the end of issue number four. Number five starts off with the team on a mission instead, and those stories with combat are one-dimensional and could have been told in a few pages. Too many concepts in this book are so bizarre they're gratuitously repulsive. Elements like the smoking boy character in issue number two who's so addicted to crack that he oozes a mucus-like substance are hard to get past. There's a lot of shots of DB8's enemies being ripped apart, including a big shot of a thug looking at his chunky severed arm in number three. The most glaring problem with the book is that Umberto Ramos's cartoony art style, while masterfully suited for the lighthearted impulse, doesn't fit with these dark stories at all. The buzz? This book is getting a massive overhaul. The creative team will soon be Michael Heisler and J.J. Kirby, and insiders of Wildstorm hint that the book's tone will lighten. The skinny? This book is trying to be the antithesis of the lighthearted Gen 13, maybe trying to ape a little a preacher, and ends up being a turnoff. The verdict? A one. I'm almost certain this is actually the lowest score that they have given. Last time they gave the first number six to Astro City, and here we are with number one. And I have to agree. So back in the day, obviously, you've listened to the show. I'm a big Gen 13 fan. I was buying all the issues, and DV8 appears in Gen 13, and I was so excited. Oh, there's going to be a spinoff. They're a little bit edgy. And then it turns out they're just terrible. Like, they're just, they're so selfish and angry, and all they do is complain, and they're, like, trying to ditch the team and like every character is just so boring but then they're trying to shock you with the gross out stuff that's in the book so there's just there's nothing about it that constitutes an enjoyable read it's not funny it's not darkly humorous it's just gross all the way around and it just ah, i don't know like i guess what i wanted out of the book was to be like oh we're a little naughty but you know you could do you know an evil, unscrupulous character, but they have some sort of moral code, and none of the characters in the book do. None of them are out to help anybody, even each other, really. Like, occasionally, like, Frostbite is like, hey, we gotta look out for other members of the team. But other than that, everybody's just, like, so wrapped up in themselves. So, yeah, DV8 was definitely a loser. Uh, not well-conceived. But let's get into our next one here as we talk about Batman the Long Halloween. So we discussed this on the main episode. I kind of laid it out for Dr. 
Dr. Kristen so she would understand what it was all about. But let's just see what they say. This is a wonderful, interesting mystery. From the first few pages of issue number one, readers will be instantly hooked on this series, trying to figure out Holiday's identity before Batman can. The Long Halloween perfectly displays Batman's core. He's a detective, a tidbit off-neglected in his regular titles. But what really makes the series work beyond the classic mystery is the excellent use of its supporting cast. The story uses the year one method of almost giving Batman a backseat to other players like Gordon, the Roman, and Harvey Dent, who are all rich characters that are fully explored in this series. And the characterization of the pre-Two-Face Harvey Dent is great. He plays a major role in trying to catch Holiday. He could even be Holiday, giving him more depth. Besides a neat supporting cast and story, this book has some of the coolest villains around, from Catwoman to Joker, Batman's rogues gallery is well represented. Most welcome is the addition of an interesting crime lord in Gotham like the Roman, a necessary yin to Batman's yang, struggling for control of their city. The art also does a brilliant job of telling the story. There's a great marriage between story and art, making the book a refreshing read from start to finish. The bad. There are a number of occasions in the art, particularly some of the gray tone murder scenes, which can appear out of nowhere, where the story becomes confusing. Since these are key points to the mystery, these black and white scenes need to be transitioned more cleanly. At $2.95 an issue, with $4.95 bookends, the series is awfully expensive, and this will undoubtedly turn off some readers. The series is so good, it doesn't need a fancy cover stock. When it's all over, DC is asking readers to shell out a whopping $42 plus change for this incredible series. This book desperately needs a What Happened Previously box, bringing readers up to date on the latest murders and suspects. The buzz? With issue number 13 a few months away, readers are getting itchy to see what Holiday really is. See page 34 for the lowdown on the suspects. The skinny, an excellent mystery story that makes deft use of its supporting cast. This book is top-notch. The ongoing Bat books could stand to make a cue from The Long Halloween, and it gets a 5. I will say, I read through The Long Halloween just because I had always heard about it and had not read it. My two takeaways were this. Number one, I was actually kind of surprised how much was used in the Matt Reeves' The Batman movie, it seemed. I don't know if that was the first time that, you know, there was a connection between Carmine Falcone and the Wayne family, but I thought that was pretty cool. The other thing, though, is that it made me realize how unoriginal Jim Lee is. Because if you think about it, obviously when he does Hush with Jeff Loeb, he's just saying, I want to do my version of The Long Halloween, right? Like, it's 100%. Here's a new mysterious killer. Here's every Batman villain gets a feature in an issue. And if you go back to his other work, what has Jim Lee created? Okay, so when he did X-Men at Marvel, all he was doing was calling back to the Burn Claremont era, right? Doing the greatest hits of that. Then, when he goes off on his own, he does Wildcats, which is basically, you know, using the Shi'ar aliens. Hey, let's kind of mix the Shi'ar intergalactic thing with X-Men. Okay, so there you go. And then he does Gen 13, which is basically just New Mutants, right? So, I don't know. Like, it just feels like Jim Lee, as much as we love his art, in terms of creating original content, ah, the guy's not got it. Hey, fight me on it. Alright, let's get into our next one here. Supergirl! Oh, now, if you'll remember, uh, recently we had William Bruce West as a guest, and he was calling out artist Gary Frank for this series. So let's see what Wizard has to say about that. Flying short of a super tale. Okay, so we have some idea what they think. What you need to know. Now based in the small town of Leesburg, the shape-shifting synthetic being known as Supergirl has merged with the mind and body of a misguided teen, Linda Danvers, in order to save Linda's life, losing some powers and gaining an identity and family in the process. The good. The art is a visual treat, making adept use of storytelling techniques. Detail is given to just the right areas. When Supergirl changes from Danvers, 
she gets taller and her eyes, hair, and figure change. Realistic elements like actually drawing Gorilla Grodd to look like a gorilla and not a humanoid gorilla give the book a distinctive look. This book finally gives Supergirl a personality. Combining her with Danvers, who wasn't quite squeaky clean, has given her an edge. She was always a little bland, and now she's got depth. There are some neat bits in the storylines. Issue number one, Supergirl Linda Merge, which asks if Supergirl saved her life or stole it. Kimo's desire to be alive in number five, and his asking for the definition of life, and the ties that villain Buzz has to Sandman are all entertaining. For new readers, there's a great What Happened Previously box, even if it is in the letters page and not up front. More comics could stand to take this route. <laughs> Honestly, at this point, if you wanted, uh, you know, good coverage at Wizard, all you had to do was put a previously on at the beginning of your comic. All right, but the bad. There are a lot of little things keeping people from caring about these characters as much as they could. For one, it needs to be clear-cut what Supergirl's powers are. Readers don't find out until a few issues into the series that the Linda merge has messed up both Linda and Supergirl. Also, Linda's mother is so bland as an overly dedicated Christian that it's annoying her character isn't bulked up more. Despite the clean pacing of the art, the origin storyline concerning Linda's background moved at a very slow pace. It could have been told in four issues rather than nine. The best stories were the self-contained issues. That had little to do with the drawn-out origin. Also, events are sometimes a bit too coincidental. In issue number three, Supergirl just happens to save a lady in trouble, and oh yeah, it's Linda's mom. And what was Grodd thinking, choosing a blip like Leesburg as a base to amass power? He might have fared better to pick Cleveland or something. The amount of supporting characters leaves little time to get background on them, and this book needs some decent villains. Let's see Supergirl get her own rogues gallery instead of an old Flash villain like Grodd or Metalman foil like Chemo. The buzz. Leonard Kirk has taken over the penciling with issue number 10. With the heat the book's been generating, he's got big shoes to fill. The skinny? This book should be more exciting than it is. With an intriguing star, a wide variety of supporting characters, and a lot of potential for villains, it's just begging for smaller, faster-paced storylines to glue it all together. It does make me wonder, as far as Supergirl goes, like, it feels like the most attention and praise she's ever gotten was in that Batman Superman series, right? When Michael Turner was drawing her. So like, do you guys agree? Was that the best Supergirl ever was? I know recently they have this Supergirl, what, like Woman of Tomorrow or whatever that the new character in the uh, Flash movie is based on, but I don't know. I'm just curious, like, has there ever been a good Supergirl run? All right, finally here, this is a big one, guys. We talked about that there was the first ever mention of Brian Michael Bendis in an ad for the Chicago Comic-Con being presented by Wizard because they had just bought it. But now this is the first coverage of the work of Brian Michael Bendis with Jinx. Don't bail on this book. What you need to know, Jinx Alameda is a weary bounty hunter, making money by bringing in criminals who skip bail. When she meets a nice guy named David Gold, aka Goldfish, things get pretty awkward when she finds out he's a weary criminal she feels she has to bring in. The good. The concept behind this series is great. A bounty hunter falls for a crook and then learns he's on the wrong side of the law. Rather than falling into the normal cliches of this type of story, bounty hunter discovers her lover's a crook, talks him out of it, and they live happily ever after, Jinx surprises and entertains. Besides having great interaction, between Jinx and Goldfish, including some very snappy dialogue. This book throws the immediate conflict in everyone's face, hooking a reader on the series from the first issue. These stories have depth. The fact that Jinx and Goldfish aren't completely and openly honest with each other adds another level to the series. The situations, dialogue, and characterization all work well together to create a realistic world. And there's a good reason for that. Bendis did his homework and talked to a real bounty hunter, whose tales Bendis bases his stories on. The unique art style crosses some very traditional borders by incorporating actual 
photos into the backgrounds of many panels, and the characters' facial expressions are priceless, instantly conveying each character's mood. The bad. While the art style is neat with all the photos interspersed throughout, at times it can be difficult to read, and that's due to the dominant use of heavy blacks in the series where pages can come off quite murky. Issue number 7, the big climax to the current storyline where Jinx must rescue Goldfish, was extremely hard to follow. At one point, it's hard to tell if it's Jinx or one of the crooks who gets shot. The pacing can be a bit off, adding to the occasional confusion. The stories can get a little choppy, jumping from one point to another too quickly, particularly the unexplained Jinx grabbing $20 bills scene shown in issue number one, and again in number five, disrupting the story. Yet, on the other end of the spectrum, there are places where the story takes too long to get to a certain spot. Some pages will have a dozen panels of talking heads or one big panel with a dozen strung-along dialogue captions. A better mix of pacing is needed. The buzz? Starting in June, Jinx moves over to Image Comics. While the series is staying in black and white, it'll get the exposure it deserves. The skinny? Jinx is a very entertaining read, thanks to a cool concept, developed characters, and great interactions between them. Unfortunately, the title is sometimes difficult to follow because of the heavy use of blacks in the art. The verdict? A four. Not bad for some guy nobody's ever heard of. Now, the one thing I didn't know about this is that Brian Michael Bendis did his own art, because it's, you know, this looks to be a completely independent production produced by him, so that's pretty good. Now, I will say, my introduction to Brian Michael Bendis was the Sam and Twitch series that was also all in black and white that McFarlane put out, because uh, I remember grabbing that trade at a used bookstore once, and I was like, wow, this is pretty fun, and the dialogue was really what sold it. Of course, that's kind of what he becomes known for, is great dialogue and some decent storytelling, so yeah. Very cool to see that way back here, Bendis is getting the attention. He would soon, uh, obviously, be featured very much in Wizard Magazine on an ongoing basis. Before we get out of here, we gotta check out our top 10 heroes and villains list. Alright, so in the number one spot, as always, is Wolverine. Hmm, Wolverine's in the top slot yet again this month. Let's see why he's so popular. What does he have going for him, anywho? Well, he's short, he's hairy, he's Canadian, he's given to the occasional wild bursts of extreme violence, he's a tough-talking, wilderness-walking, take-no-crap-from-man-woman-child-or-small-mammal kind of guy. All these traits are also shared by former professional wrestler Maurice Mad Dog Bashan, but Mad Dog's nowhere to be found on this list. Just goes to show you that being an ex-guy will get you farther in life than being a tag-team world champion. Oh, so those of you who don't know Mad Dog Vashon, although he did have a very memorable moment where his uh, fake leg was taken off uh, in WWE. Luna Vashon is his daughter, and she was a pretty prominent female wrestler all throughout the 90s as well. Alright, but let's get into number two, Spawn. Aw, oh, look, little Spawny guy is sad. What does he have to be sad about? We have no idea. After all, he's the focus of a major movie coming out later this year in a cartoon series from HBO. He's got one of the top-selling comic titles and one of the top-selling toy lines out there, but he's also got a hunk of rotting meat for a face, a bizarre brotherhood of demons looking to kill him, and rumor has it he's got a case of underwear up your butt crack syndrome that just won't quit. Maybe that's why he's looking so glum. Number three, Witchblade. 
How could Sarah Pizzini, the woman who holds the Witchblade, like, totally combat evil and stuff when her hair's fallen in her face? That can't be healthy. Picture this scenario. She's battling bad guys and stuff, kicking ass and taking names when, whap, she gets cuffed in the side of the head by a giant flounder hurled by Fishface, nasty master of the ocean depths. She gets a concussion and has migraines for weeks. As a result, the whole Top Cow universe collapses, and all this could have been avoided with a simple headband. Maybe a baseball cap, but do-rag? When are these heroes gonna learn? Number four, Spider-Man. Hey, you can't do that. You can't have Spider-Man's mask squint. It's a mask. And why is that mask squinting? Is the sun too bright? Is Spidey doing one of those Clint Eastwood stares into the sun? Or is the artist just trying to convey emotion on the face of a character who wears a full expressionless mask? We don't know. But we do know this here Spider-Guy is one of the most popular hombres in comicdom and is now the star of a new monthly Marvel team-up title. Personally, we'd like to see Spidey team up with Squirrel Girl. More on squirrels later. Now, yeah, that is something interesting, right? You know, just artistic license that you could have Spider-Man squint and have, you know, the giant white of his mask. You get tiny, tiny. Although I will say, uh, I did enjoy it. You know, finally, when the Tom Holland films came out, I, I'm not a fan of Iron Man Jr. Tom Holland, which is why I'm looking forward to a fourth film where he's got that fabric costume that we saw at the end of uh, No Way Home. But I did like that they were at least able to explain how his eyes could squint and show expression so all right number five is batman you know batman can use a little cheering up he's always got that sour way too serious look on his face like he hasn't taken a good crap in three weeks we think he needs a little pick-me-up so maybe you should send him a little something just to let him know you're thinking about him a bouquet of flowers a fruit basket perhaps maybe a big tarp to keep all the guano off his detective type equipment in the bat cave that's a very good point actually you got those bats flying around you don't think they're crapping all over the batmobile before you get a chance to take it out. All right, number six is Preacher. That Jesse Custer guy, Preacher to you, partner. It was a lot of popular fellow these days. But then again, you'd be popular too if you were a defrocked damn. But we love that word. Sounds dirty. A minister who gets to hang around with a supermodel-looking assassin girlfriend and a drunken Irish vampire. And you wouldn't have to worry about popularity if you had the word. A funky little ability to make anyone do whatever you say. Jesse's got it all. Lucky guy. Number seven is Fairchild from Gen 13. Remember if few years ago when science geeks at some egghead school took a Barbie doll, measured it, extended the measurements out to the height of an average woman, and realized that Barbie dolls could never be women because they're impossibly proportioned? Well, meet Caitlin Fairchild. From the looks of it, she's about 6'3", but her legs are 48 inches long. Where does she buy her pants? Maybe she can't wear pants, so that's why she's always wearing that unitard thing. And what would Cosmopolitan think? Yes, another thing kind of uh, documented uh, by Dr. Kristen when she grabbed that Vampirella trading card and saw her measurements. All right, number eight is Supergirl. She's new. She's different. She's still blonde. This ain't your father's Supergirl patrolling the streets of Leesburg these days. She's an alien who merged with the proto-matter, the squishy stuff she's made of that looks like chewed up bubblegum, of her form with the body of a wounded Linda Danvers to save Danvers' life. Now Danvers and the alien are one. It's like having two brains in one body. There's more potential for zany hijinks here than in an average episode of Three's Company. Come and knock on our door. All right. Number nine is Dark Child. If Fairchild's proportions are impossible, then Dark Child's must be double secret impossible with a cherry on top. We think that were Miss Ariel Child a real person, her measurements would be 36D 
by 12 by 34. That just wouldn't work. Not even with all the corsets and implants in the world. You'd have to defy the laws of physics to make her. You'd have to build her out of antimatter. It's a good thing she's a comic character and thus just made of paper and ink. Alright, number 10 is Deadpool. Hey, Deadpool's mask is squinting too. How'd they do that? We still don't know. But one thing we do know is that we're glad old Deadpool wears a mask. You see, word on the street is that Wade Wilson, that's Deadpool kitties, has a kisser that looks like someone set it on fire and then beat it out with a football cleat. His face has rarely been shown, which probably has a lot to do with his popularity. Keep it covered, baby. It is interesting to think that at this time, we hadn't seen much of Deadpool's face, because I feel like that's like a main characteristic of him now, especially after the Ryan Reynolds movie. But it also makes me realize like Spawn and Deadpool have quite a connection there, don't they? Although I guess there's a whole club you could put together because Baron Zemo's face is all messed up too. That's just kind of a, a trope. All right, but hey, let's close this out by checking out our Mort of the Month. And wouldn't you know it, it's that cuddly little Green Lantern, Chip. Dear God, affirmative action has gone too far. Weren't the Green Lantern Corps supposed to be the guardians of the universe? Were they not entrusted to keep all life forms safe from an evildoers everywhere? And they sent a friggin' squirrel into the endless battle against evil? Think about it. If you were some badass crime guy, would you be scared of a 1 foot 9, 22 pound rodent named Chip? With a bow tie? We didn't think so. The only good thing this little mort ever did was die in great roadkill fashion. He was splattered by a truck in Green Lantern Mosaic number 2. Hooray! Are are you kidding me? Did they really do that? <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen uh, in the back issue bins that Mosaic comic and I was always like, oh, well, whatever. John Stewart's cool, but I don't need to read that. But now that I know that Chip gets splatted by a truck, that cracks me up. Man. Wow. Okay. Well, he does get uh, all the way up except one head on the Mortometer, so they definitely thought he was ridiculous and strange, but that's the way it goes. Now let's close this thing out. want to thank you again for joining us for this edition of Wizards Half. Had a lot of fun. Thanks to Richie for joining us for that casting call. So many cool things. I will tell you this. If you wanted more out of that conversation, uh, on our Patreon feed, we did a video version where you can actually see that he had a hoodie and all these different things. He was wearing a t-shirt that was a promotional t-shirt from that era for the Iron Man movie. So if you're interested in getting the full experience, you might consider joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. Five bucks a month or hey you want to get into our seven dollar tier so you get a bonus movie review episode each month you could do that too the phantom will be our march episode uh, i will tell you this also that uh 90s super cinema for the foreseeable future which is to say the next month or two will be the only place that you'll be hearing michael on the podcast he's just gotten super busy with work and life and so we're not going to be able to have him dedicated to the podcast but we have a lot of cool special guests coming up but if you miss michael and you want 
want to hear him talk in movies, he's always excited to do that. And so we're able to get things going there with 90s Super Cinema. Plus, if you join the Patreon, just one more thing, you do actually get to vote on what one of those episodes will be. So something to consider. We'd love to have you join us. But also, uh, coming up next is not going to be a main episode, but a bonus episode. Wizard just couldn't get enough of those special issues, could they? They wanted to find the next Toy Fair or Inquest, and so they launched Sci-Fi Invasion. And the person who put that whole idea together was Doug Goldstein. Yes, he of Robot Chicken, but also he was there from the very beginning of Wizard. We'd had him on several interviews and special roundtables. And this is the most excited I've ever seen Doug Goldstein. He loved this magazine. He loved science fiction. He is so animated and wonderful uh, to talk to. So you will get to enjoy that bonus episode covering all five issues of Sci-Fi Invasion next week. Uh, But after that, for episode 72, we have a returning guest who is very special indeed, Mr. Jason Liebig, who you will recall uh, joined us previously, and he spilled a lot of behind-the-scenes details because he was an assistant editor on the X-Men books at Marvel, and he's been involved. He worked at Toy Biz. He's done so many different things. And so he's coming back because this is a very X-Men heavy issue, and we're very interested to get his take on how comics were created and all of those things. So I hope that you will join us for that episode. It's going to be great to have him on as a guest. Of course, you want to check us out daily, then go on over to Twitter at Wizards Comics, Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Of course, we are on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're doing top 10 videos. We're doing haul videos. We keep talking about TikTok. I'm not a Mr. Video Editing, so like I haven't put together a lot of TikTok stuff or really any at this point. It will be coming. We've got the account. If you're missing us on TikTok, Sorry, I know we're telling you it's happening. It exists. But if there's content you would want to see on TikTok, drop us a line and let us know. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.